arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Looks like McCabe is going to bring her country dancing out to that place up in Maine. Who is that guy? Listen, I'm getting a little nervous out here, says Maddie. But she slowly begins to trust McCabe. Mm-hmm. And goes for a hike with a local woman. Because she catches McCabe in a lie, in a hidden background. And later, another indication that John is stalking her. Then she encounters a shocking problem that could leave her exposed to trouble. So much so, she grabs a carving knife as the encroaching thunderstorm approaches. Here is Maddie Summers in Episode 3, alone in the exchange house with no phone connection, no power, and a surging storm moving up the craggy coastline. Chapter 14 Maddie leaned against the reading room window as the wall clock approached seven. Headlights shot through the treetops beyond the maintenance shed. She gripped the lace curtain and closed her hard-cover book as the light and the shadows blinked across the kitchen wall. She untwisted the deadbolt and opened the door when McCabe's truck coasted past the garage. She had flipped on every outside light, illuminating the yard brightly. McCabe again parked diagonally, between the garage and the porch. His interior lights popped on, highlighting his dusty shirt and his red kerchief around his neck. The outline of his rounded silver belt buckle reflected in the light as he swung out of the truck and carried a large white box. She pushed the screen door. If that's what I think it is. Hey, partner, he said, moving up the wooden steps. He opened the box and pulled out a small felt Stetson and placed it on her head. Maddie balanced the hat as she smiled. Where's yours? Well, it's in the truck. You look so natural. I thought I came to Maine, McCabe, not East Texas. The shirt accentuated his broad shoulders and the dark jeans, his taller frame. In his eyes, she sensed a more relaxed manner, as if he were off duty from his business activities. Come on in for a minute. And how are things going here at the Fairbanks house? He asked as he walked by. When she did not immediately answer, he turned from the kitchen. Okay, what's the matter? Another rose. What do you mean? In my dresser, McCabe. His eyes darted between the stairs and the front door. Well, I guess Mrs. Simmons did her job. Did she? Just like Mr. Simmons? Maddie, he said, smiling as he moved toward her and held her shoulders. Listen, everything is okay. People stay out here all the time. Nobody hassles them. My husband has something to do with those roses. Why did Rialto send those yellow roses? Well, it's unfortunate that they did. You're a bright girl. Surely you understand that some things are circumstantial. Oh, don't play prosecutor with me, McCabe. Did that lady put the rose on the bed and in the dresser? Why not just leave a bouquet? Well, I'll check that out. Listen, I'm getting a little nervous out here. 
Two times this afternoon the phone rang, and first I heard the chiming and then a car go by. Do all your guests get these calls? And don't tell me it's circumstantial. I do want to go out with you tonight, McCabe, and I do want to spend time up here, but I won't be harassed. If somebody's playing games with me, whether it's my husband or somebody else, then I'm out of here. If I have to take a taxi to Portland, I will. Maddie. He held her shoulders again with his wide hands, but she was more reassured than threatened. I'll call the phone company and I'll talk to Winnie Simmons. The phone worries me. First of all, why are they calling and who else knows you're up here? Probably the whole town. That guy in the diner, Raymond Snowden, the way he took that booth and now he's working on the rental car. And I know you're going to tell me that the guy isn't threatening. Somebody bopped him in the eye. I want that guy brought in for questioning. McCabe smiled, pulled out a kitchen chair, and spun it around so he could lean both his elbows on the back. Okay, where is Raymond calling from? The only chiming in this town is from the Congregational Church steeple. The guy doesn't own a cell phone. His brow tightened and he pushed his incisors into his bottom lip. I don't know. And how do you know he doesn't own a cell phone? I checked it. Oh, then you are concerned. I like answers. Maybe I'll talk to Preb tomorrow and have him put something on the line. Well, I can change the number, but that might take a few days. Then do it. I'm not saying it's Raymond. It could be anyone in town. Or your husband. Yes, yes, that is entirely right. I left a message on his voicemail. I know he has it by now. McCabe's eyes darted again, and he seemed to be thinking about something. What kind of a guy is he? John? He's driven, absolutely absorbed in business. All business? Maddie nodded, picked up her pocketbook, and pulled a strap over her shoulder. Yep, he never stops. I just feel, McCabe, if he's gotten so upset, he might just become obsessed with me in the same way. If what you're saying is true, said McCabe, walking beside her, then he's probably taking care of business. He doesn't have time to torment you, partner. She tapped his shoulder and spoke in a countryfied voice. I'm sure you're right, partner. Maddie sat quietly in the truck cab as McCabe drove by the diner. She stared at Belson's closed bays and thought about her rental car still inside. Having Raymond Snowden work on that car made her uneasy. McCabe signaled right and pulled off Main Street. Brisky whiskeys. You get this many people on a Thursday night? It's the local hotspot. Before it was country, it was an oldies place. Before that, let's see, it was an Italian restaurant that lasted six months. I was gone in the 70s, but they played disco up here. When I was a kid, this place was a machine shop. Maddie laughed, tilting her head back so she almost lost the hat. That's what I like about you, McCabe. Ask a question and you give the whole story. No summary, no headlines, the whole nine yards. Well, in the 40s, they made shoes here for the war. I swear, somebody should hire you as a tour guide. McCabe swung around the parking lot and backed the truck into a space under a pole light. I like facts. He shut off the engine and looked like he might kiss her. You want to go dancing or what? Let's go, partner. The bright red and blue lights, loud crowd noise, and booming speakers bothered her until the third beer. 
The six men and the lead woman singer now sounded better on stage, and her nerves finally settled. She trotted alongside McCabe, learned some of the dancing steps, and laughed amidst the other couples jammed onto the parquet dance floor. Occasionally, the cut roses and the repeated chiming calls flashed into her thoughts as she put her arm around McCabe's large frame during the slow dances. A few young women cut in and danced with McCabe for a short time, leading her to speculate about the first man she had gone out with since she left John. McCabe, with a skinny blonde, turned down his lips and sulked. Then he smiled and spun the woman around. Maddie drifted over to the bar and ordered a ginger ale and waited for McCabe to come over. What a following you have, McCabe. McCabe looked over his shoulder as the blonde danced with a younger, bearded guy with a tattoo on his right arm. Me or Sandy? Maddie leaned back in the bar chair and sipped on the ginger ale. This is quite a place, McCabe. And here you can almost forget about what's bugging you. Have you? I said almost. Can you call your cleaning lady about those roses? Oh, sure. He reached for a clean napkin and tapped the sweat from his forehead. Beer, McCabe? asked the short woman near the tap. McCabe signaled with his hands. Later. Then he turned to Maddie. I have to use the restroom and then I'll call Winnie. Straighten the latest rose thing out. And I insist that we have the next dance together. Oh, if John could see me now. McCabe smiled, squeezed her wrist, and moved along the bar. He waved to a couple of people and spoke with an older man before he disappeared around the barnboard wall toward the men's room. The song's lyrics made no sense, but the rhythm moved along and she tapped her foot against the bar. She looked toward the men's room and smiled. McCabe's wiping the perspiration from his own forehead seemed genuine, as did his overall sincerity, but she sensed he was holding something back. Like the careful prosecutor, he only released what he needed to release. Maddie crunched some crushed ice and swished it around her mouth before swallowing the ginger ale. She gazed up at the monitor at the far end of the bar and watched the country video for a short time. She prayed Mrs. Simmons had put those roses in the bedroom. Her eyes drifted as the smoke from the other side of the bar rose above Raymond Snowden's cigarette. His long hair, pulled into a ponytail, was icy blue in the bar light and hung over his green and yellow striped shirt. He revealed a missing front tooth, and when he smiled at her, the bruise tightened over his eye. He inhaled deeply on the cigarette and then gazed at the TV monitor. Maddie propped her elbows on the urethane bar, clutched her glass, and clamped her jaw. Trouble followed this guy, and she did not discount the possibility he was the caller on the phone. She constantly reminded herself to keep a clear head and to think everything through. Yet this seedy little man was just the type to drive out to the house and shake loose the deadbolt. She settled back in the chair, but compulsively turned. Raymond's chair was empty and his drink gone. Maddie closed her eyes and her hands shook as they had back at the house. McCabe was on a payphone in the lobby. As she stood, the pungent smell of stale beer sickened her stomach and she felt a cold presence on her shoulders. Hey. You seem to think I'm some kind of maggot. She stared at Raymond Snowden's heavy red eyes and tight matted skin. My God. He spoke slowly and accentuated every syllable. Listen, Mrs. Summers. How do you know my name? I am working on your car, remember? Just because you think I took your booth, 
I get that booth every morning on my break, and you lost. Listen, I, I really don't want to be talking to you. She turned and pulled her pocketbook strap up and started back across the floor, but he stepped in front of her, halting her progress. And I don't like being treated like dirt. What's mine is mine. I don't care about the booth, okay? Let go of my arm. I don't want anything to do with you. She looked into his gray eyes, and he turned away, expressionless. He didn't head for the lobby, but veered around the bar and opened the door under a red exit sign. Mar Maddie tensed her arm as he vanished into the night, and she raced into the lobby. McCabe, his back to her, held the phone to his ear, and with animated gestures, spoke loudly into the receiver. She stayed back, wondering why Raymond would act so foolish, knowing she came in here with McCabe. McCabe could crack his jaw with a single blow. She sat and rested her head against the barn board as he continued on the phone. When he slammed it on the hook and turned, he seemed stunned to see her across the lobby. His glum face was transformed into a quick smile. Maddie, good news! She cut them and put one on the pillow and the other one in the drawer. Yeah, and why did you slam down the phone, McCabe? I was talking to one of my subs I use for the properties. I apologize. Sometimes I have to be a little tough to get them off their duffs. So, one part of this is solved. I'm afraid I don't know about the calls. Oh, good old Raymond Snowden just told me I had the wrong opinion about him. Why would that be? Did you talk to him? McCabe looked at her for a few seconds as if he were weighing things in his mind. Yeah, I told him I didn't like him taking your booth yesterday. What else did he say? He told me not to treat him like dirt, and then he left. Did he threaten you? Asked McCabe, looking back inside. No, no, I don't know. He's just weird. I guess he just wants to be respected. Well, he can start by cleaning up his act. He got that right, but he still scares me. Maddie put her hands on her hips. So, she cut the roses. The roses were delivered. Some were bad, and she, uh cut the other ones that were good. McCabe looked out the side window and into the parking lot. I have to go outside for a minute. My friend Jake, the cop, he pulls in around 10 and I always give him a full report. Will you be all right? Oh yeah, sure. I have to use the restroom anyways. I'll be right back. McCabe straight-armed the heavy wood door and went outside. He entered the passenger side of a white and black cruiser. The blue-uniformed officer showed him something on a clipboard and McCabe shrugged his shoulders. Maddie, not understanding the conversation, turned from the window with a sense of relief. At least John, although he may not have directed Rialto, was not lurking around the house. But Raymond was odd enough to have been placing calls just to rattle her. McCabe had said Raymond grew angry when he was drunk, and whether he had tried to enter the house was something Maddie could not reckon. Chapter 15 McCabe returned from the parking lot, but it took another few beers to lighten his attitude. For the next two hours, they sat at a table away from the bar and the dancing. You loved your dad, didn't you? She asked, her elbows positioned on the table. His father had been a hero and took a mass of bullets in his right leg. The act earned him a purple heart, to add to a long list of heroic citations McCabe could never match. His father became one of the sharpest attorneys in Portland after the service. McCabe's eyes moistened for the first time. So, you said they fixed up the Fairbanks house? Huh, when we were kids, see that guy over there? 
Matty turned to a rotund bearded guy in his 30s. That's Walter Nevins. He knows about the cliffs. Hell, he used to play war out there. Everybody played with guns. There were good guys and bad guys. We could have been anywhere from 10 to 20 kids out there. I pictured myself as my dad. Lead my unit. I know every inch of that beach. Sometimes we'd land boats and felt like I was right there. We'd listen to my father's stories and then go and act them out. Take the incinerator. It was being used back then. Well, I'm going to paint the cliffs tomorrow, but I'm not putting that incinerator in there. We've lived with it all our lives. It wouldn't seem normal not to have it there. Somehow, McCabe, I understand what you're saying, she said and smiled. Then she yawned. Oh, I'm sorry. McCabe laughed as he spoke. Yeah, I know this is all boring as hell. Somehow, I don't think hell would be boring. A lot of other things, but not boring. Are you ready to go back? He smiled and tipped the rest of the beer into his mouth. Uh, yep. You're asking for trouble. Nope. Come on. Maddie did not notice the yellow harvest moon until McCabe brought the truck up the maintenance shed hill. The lawn and the volleyball net were bright under the glaze. When he cut the lights, the bay reflected against a constant changing shimmer, bordered by the curving white beach. She stepped from the truck as the surf burst across the rocks below. You ever see this by moonlight, McCabe? He held her shoulders and then kissed her. Now I have. She smiled and kept the smile on her face as he put his arm around her. We used to run from room to room of the Fairbanks house with our guns. I died in there a hundred times. One time I fell through the side room, now the reading room. Through the floorboards and into the cellar. That's how bad that place was. Were you hurt? She asked as they moved up the porch steps. Hell no. I took out three of my buddies when they looked down the hole. Falling through that floor added to the realism. She pulled back the screen door as McCabe unlocked the front door and checked the deadbolt screws. Then he pushed open the door and motioned her inside. The house still smelled of mango from her bath. She looked up at the phone and then walked into the kitchen, pushed the light switch on the wall. Coffee? Yeah. I have exotic mixes and regular. Well, I'm a regular kind of guy. Maddie grinned, lifting up the kettle. She ran the tap for a few moments and let the water hit over the copper bottom. McCabe, your buddy Jake, the cop, another one of my original army guys out here at the cliffs. Well, I saw you looking at a clipboard. His face shrunk and he pulled out a chair, turning it around again as he sat down. I needed him to check some potential workers for my properties. You're a busy man. She set the kettle on the burner and turned the knob. With her back to the counter, she slid toward the radio. Listen, if there's anything going on here, I mean, with what I heard the other night, and then with the phone calls. Well, I did talk to Jake earlier about those phone calls. They must be coming from outside of town near the church. I keep thinking about that church, but it could be my husband. Would he... Maddie crossed her arms and laughed. You mean, would he call like this? Oh, yes. He threatened me before we split up. How so? He told me never to interfere with his business calls. He tightened his arm around my arm, and then he said if I did interfere, I'd regret it. Well, I'm sorry. Guess he took his business a little too seriously. I didn't know how to take that threat. McCabe nodded. She walked to the kitchen window and stared at the moonlit bay with a bad feeling about John and whatever vindictiveness he still held. In competitive situations, he was ruthless. She continued to look across the water as McCabe pushed his chair back and walked over to her. I'm glad you decided to come up here. 
She moved her lips around without fully smiling, and then she held his arm. I've always been fascinated with New England, but I never made it up here. One part of me doesn't want to go home. We have supermarkets and some new chain drugstores, but, but we also have an old-fashioned drugstore downtown, and our grammar school is the same one I went to. It must be ancient. He smiled and pointed at her. Then he kissed her again, but she let him kiss longer, and his embrace thrilled her. He lifted her a few inches off the ground and looked into her eyes as his lips slid away. The kettle boiled behind her. The kettle's steaming. I bet it is, Mr. McCabe. She was certain he was watching as she moved toward the stove. On one level, as she shut off the burner, she wanted to run back and hold him. Guilt racked her as she took the kettle off the stove and imagined herself holding him under the covers in the poster bed upstairs. She took down a large cup and poured the hot water. Steam rose from the cup. He must have thought about spending the night here. Maybe she should not have let him kiss her or even gone out. She looked up and smiled as she unscrewed the instant coffee jar and pushed a spoon into the granules. Maddie, I don't want to go home. Two sugars and light on the milk. Yep. McCabe, you're talking like a native. And you're avoiding the question. She dumped in the sugar and poured the remainder of a quarter of milk container into the cup. Then she raised the cup with both hands and brought it to McCabe. You men, you're so direct, so organized in your precision. Thank you. He sipped the hot liquid. For my opinion or the coffee? Both. We always just ask the question, don't we, instead of crafting it. Maybe we want to know up front so we don't get shut down. Hmm, I never thought of it that way. The male ego has a hole in it. Men don't like to lose, Maddie. They get hurt and disguise the hurt by being nasty and overbearing. Don't be hurt, McCabe. I want you to spend the night, but it's me. I'm not ready. McCabe set down the coffee and held her shoulders. Well, you're as ready as you'll ever be. Don't do this to me or yourself. Listen to what I said. I don't know you that well, but I like you and I do want you here. My life is just so screwed up right now. He turned and grabbed the coffee. She thought he might move toward the door. You can sleep upstairs. Lock your door. Lock all the doors. I'll sleep on the reading room sofa. You suspect something. Heck no. But now that you mention it, I would like to be here when that phone rings again. And won't it put your mind at ease knowing I'm down here? McCabe, you should have continued with the law. Well? All right, on the couch. Do you snore? You'll have to sleep a lot closer to find that out, he said, smiling again, and he finished his coffee, his dark eyes looking over the top of the cup. Why did I think you'd say that? Chapter 16 Maddie, in another flannel nightgown, set down her toothbrush. She had sifted through the drawers and checked under the quilt, but had found no roses. Having McCabe on the first floor gave her security amidst the isolation. She turned to the light, still visible downstairs. McCabe coughed. She descended the stairs and leaned on the banister. His head sunk into a fluffed-up pillow she had taken from the closet. He wore no shirt, but his powerful pectorals rested under a red, white, and blue quilt. What is this, a bed check? This is an official bed check, McCabe. Are you behaving yourself? If I was behaving myself, I wouldn't be sleeping over here. Maddie grinned and gazed down at the phone. If the phone rings, my orders are to answer and unravel, ma'am. He saluted her and turned, still smiling. 
I'll see you in the morning, Maddie. Good night, McCabe. She started up the stairs and the light went out, shifting the illumination to her upstairs light. When she reached the tub room, she grasped the staircase doorknob and gently shut the door, but she stared at the raised lock twist. She left the door unlocked. McCabe, a man she had almost slept with, was only ten feet below her on the couch. She pinched the lock, turned it, and the inner mechanism clicked into place. On some level, she distrusted McCabe, even though she could not consciously explain it. And the ensuing anxiety overtook her as she shut off the bathroom light and also locked the inner bathroom door. She stepped out of her slippers next to the poster bed and slid under the sheets. Her head on the pillows, she pulled the quilt into place. She shut off the hurricane lamp after one more visual check of the bureaus and the dresser. Hazy light blotches inundated the darkness, but soon dissipated. She breathed rapidly as the faint wind whistled through the moonlight window border and the house creaked around her. A small change of events and McCabe might have snuggled next to her right now, probably kissing her neck as a prelude to making love to her. She thought herself prudish and still attached to John, but at the same time, McCabe's ambivalent presence below kept her awake. The onward ticking of the alarm clock paced her thoughts. She was convinced John had called from some unknown location, and she longed for McCabe's strong, masculine voice to answer the next call. The yellow roses, so conveniently delivered by Rialto, was partially explained by John's lurking behind the scenes. Then in her mind, she drifted back to Raymond Snowden in the diner and then at Brisky Whiskey's. The white, wicker dresser was heightened in the moonlight. She wanted someone to hold her and tell her everything was all right. A knock on the stairway door shook her in the chair. Before she opened her eyes, a strong coffee aroma wafted to the second floor. At ten past nine, the morning sun brightened the pastel shades. She heaved the quilt over the bed and unlocked the door. She shuffled past the tub and turned the stairway door lock. McCabe stood with a tray of almond-roasted coffee, toast cut into quarters, and orange juice. McCabe! You're a sleepyhead. Rialto provides room service? No, this is pure McCabe. He held the tray and looked into her eyes. You sleep all right? I thought I heard you up and about. No, I mean, yeah. She motioned him by, briefly covering her mouth and thrilled by his attention. He walked upright into the bedroom. Some noise woke me up. Well, I was hoping that wasn't it. He set the tray on the dresser and went around pulling up the shades. Maddie smiled at the vivid colors dancing in the outside breeze. Well, get in bed. Well, that's a line if I ever heard one. She slipped by him and arranged the quilt neatly over the bed. After propping up the pillows, she slid under the sheets and sat up as McCabe lifted the tray. I know what you're thinking. Oh, I don't know if you do, she said. Is this what he does for every woman who comes up here alone to the house? Well, only when I haven't got business commitments. He stopped before he reached the bed as if he had said the wrong thing. Here you go, service with a smile. Well, this is just wonderful, she said as he set the tray braces across her quilt-covered legs. What about you? I had some stuff earlier around sunrise. Maddie bit into the toast corner and washed it over with the tarred orange juice. Kate, what was that noise last night? I don't know. Nothing to worry about, though. Listen, I don't have to be back until later. 
I'd like to take you down to the cliffs and along the beach before Abby Preble comes over. If you don't mind all the hiking. Well, since I don't have my aerobics class, I need to keep in shape. Plus, I do a lot of running. Sure, I'd love to walk the beach, McCabe. As she tasted the coffee, she pictured him smoking at the back of his truck and wondered what he had retrieved from the back seat. McCabe looked out the rear window and toured the volleyball net and the lane leading to the main road. He had seen or heard something worth investigating with the flashlight, and he was still looking. Near eleven, Maddie, dressed in a lighter jersey and jeans, held McCabe's hand near the cliff extrusion. The ocean rocked in prodigious upward swells, intercepted by the craggy rocks below, and produced a mass of white brine into the fall air. Let's try the cliff trail. It's breathtaking, if you survive. Heights bother me. Come on, Maddie, where's your sense of adventure? I left it with my stomach at ground level. McCabe's eyes darted between her and the bay. McCabe, it's 15 minutes longer by the wood trail. Come on, the sea air will do you good. Maddie stepped back, her mouth curled into a little ball as she shook her head and pointed demonstratively toward the forest. McCabe rolled his eyes. Women. She smiled and took his elbow and started down a well-trodden trail, lined by deep red bushes and some pines, but overshadowed by a proliferation of orange maples. The incline arched down gradually, much more to her liking. The sunlight flickered over his face. So, McCabe, where are all the women in your life? Like the flowers, where have they all gone? He said as if he had anticipated the question. No, seriously. The bay was painted blue over the rounded, tree-packed hill. A guy like you should be married with a few little McCabe's running around. I'm a busy man, Maddie. My business takes up a lot of my time. She deemed it another canned answer. I suppose I'll settle down again. Ah, again, again. Have we discovered a romance in the past? I'm glad I'm not alone in that regard but he didn't say anything more about any previous relationship as they descended above the marshes and stepped onto the grainy beach. Once in the sand, past the wood line, the towering cliffs were revealed in full sunlight. Huge rock chunks had fallen into the ocean and were constantly pounded by the gurgling brine, rising into the blue sky and breaking apart into a mist and then raining back upon the sea. She stopped and lined up the area she wanted to paint. Magnificent! Thanks, I try and work out now and then. Maddie smiled and produced a choppy laugh. <laughs> no, not you, the other dense structure. Hey, listen, you. He took her by the hand, and they ran harder toward the wet sand along the water's edge. When they had gone just a few hundred yards, he was breathing heavily and she was hardly winded. Where the hell do you work out? Watch yourself, McCabe. I'm not going to give away my trade secrets. She raised her brows. And it wouldn't hurt to lay off the cigarettes, I know. I didn't say that. She grinned and bent down. From above, this beach looks pure white like silk. They started down toward the river and the incinerator beyond. The reed marshes, a couple of hundred yards back, lined the breaking surf. Maddie studied the mechanics of the breaking waves, something never captured in the first instant except in a painting or a photograph. With no outside intervention, the wave cut the water bubbling white as it washed upon the sand-packed sloping shore and then was swept under again. He shook his head slowly. Something grabbed his thoughts. It had begun when she talked about past romances. You've seen a lot on this beach, haven't you, McCabe? 
Yeah, my dad used to bring us down here fishing. My mother would pack lunches. We'd race in the sands, Maddie. I first kissed a girl where we left the woods. Where is she now? I don't know. She held his elbow again as the wind bounced over the water and took some of the sand upward. The gulls chased the tide and more geese headed south over the water. McCabe, we're going to have dinner tonight. Are you asking me out? He smiled and pointed across the bay. There's a storm coming tonight. It's going to blow out all this warmer air. Skies are clear. Trust me. She moved her lips upward. 6.30. I'll have dinner on the table. Really? Yeah, really. What do you say? She stopped and gazed at the cliffs, even more imposing from this distance. You know, I'm never one to turn down meals. Now, you're hiking with Abby Preble at 1. Correct. So you'll be back around 2 or 2.30 or 3. I'll give you an itinerary if you want it. After Abby, I'm going to paint this area from the yard. She put her finger on her chin and then pecked his lips. You talked me into it. Chapter 17 With the warming temperatures, Maddie changed into beige walking shorts and a worn olive sweatshirt tied around her waist. She carried a long white paper roll to be used for gravestone rubbing and tracing pencils were zipped in her backpack. A white-haired but spry Abby Preble moved quickly past the small fluffy trees and red shrubs, each retaining a smattering of green leaves along the winding ocean trail. Another more direct path cut across the hill crest and connected the cemetery and the house. For a full hour, Maddie listened to Abby's clear-accented words detailing Rexford's past, specifically several smaller, dilapidated houses belonging to Captain Fairbanks' sons and torn down only ten years ago. Well, it was a haven for teenage drinking parties. Who knows what else went on up here? Preb knows, but he isn't telling me, and I don't want to know. Well, it's a long way to hike for the kids. Not if you come up the Padford Connector beach road that begins south of Rexford and takes another 15 minutes, but they reach the Padford Fairbanks place very easily. It was a nightmare for the police. Everyone was afraid of the fires. Abby hiked ahead of Maddie up the top of the knoll. Maddie gazed through a line of thick oaks and pines to the blue ocean horizon. As she stepped forward, Maddie slipped but quickly regained her balance. A small brown liquor bottle, straight scotch whiskey inside, lay pressed into the soil. Ah, I can see they still come up here, said Abby from above. Maddie centered on the potential intruders back at the house. The midday autumn light precisely and selectively brightened the forest, but she reviewed every noise she had heard in that house. So somebody could come up the Padford Connector from south of town and... and park by the graveyard. Abby turned and wiped her brow. You know, Maddie, this weather is deceiving. Here we are sweating, and Preb had the heat blasting yesterday. It is hot. Maddie climbed over the granite extrusions, forming a natural staircase to the top. She put her hands on her hips and gazed down at the forested knoll, but her eyes stopped at the discarded liquor bottle. I've never experienced anything like this color in the ocean. I know it's all new, and if you've lived here all the time, it probably becomes mundane. But this area, there's something about it. Abby placed her fingers on Maddie's wrist. It only becomes mundane, dear, for those who let it become mundane. Come on, we're almost at the cemetery. 
Maddie nodded, but an image of Raymond Snowden walking from the liquor store with the paper bag so early in the day merged into her consciousness. But she refused to look back at the bottle. Even at Brisky Whiskey's, his arrogant attitude bothered her. At least McCabe would be back for dinner. Abby led her through one last thicket, abutting a cleared parcel near more rock cliffs overlooking the sea. A slew of marble and granite gravestones, aligned symmetrically over the wispy grass slopes, brought Maddie into Rexford's past. Abby pointed to a white fence bordering the woods, and then at a stone cellar, surrounded by thick scrub brush. That is, or was, Paddleford's house. Interesting, said Maddie. In a gravel lot, across from the stone cellar, car tracks were imprinted in the crushed stone. Abby, how long does it take to get back to the house via the other trail? Oh, only about ten minutes. The second trail began across the graveyard between two granite posts in the tall grass bordering the woods. I see. Captain Fairbanks is over here, said Abby. Maddie's head snapped left, but she kept thinking that someone could have driven up the connector road last night and then marched up the trail to the house. Captain requested a simple slab. Feel free to rub this one if you have enough paper. Maddie, the roll under her arm, crossed between the worn and cracked marble and granite stones, 200 years old, some covered with lichen. She stopped to read the birth and death dates, inscriptions and epitaphs as Abby continued down the slope. She might hang the grave tracings around her studio. Maddie, over here! She peered over a thin, chipped marble stone and nodded. Abby was outlined in the sharp sunshine against the sea cliffs beyond the tree barrier. Maddie scurried down the slope, her pack swaying across her back. Captain Fairbanks's prominent slate stone was brushed clean. Abby extended her open hand toward a chiseled verse and then recited it while looking out to sea. She has no strong white arms to fold you, but ten times fingering weed to hold you, out on the rocks where the tide has rolled you. Yet the signs of summer thicken, in the birch buds quicken. Yearly you turn from our side and sicken. Sicken again for the shouts and slaughters. You steal away the lapping waters. And look at your ship in her winter quarters. Captain died in 1917, said Abby. Influenza. Maddie pinched her chin. That's part of a larger poem. I don't remember it. Kipling? Correct. You can see the complete poem at the library. Harp Song of the Dane Woman. Maddie grinned and stood. I thought he might have died at sea or in the battle. He was an old man. Did he die in the house? She moved through each room in her mind. Back down the hill? No, I believe he died in a Portland hospital. We had the funeral in town here. It was magnificent. We also have those photographs at the library. Maddie unrolled her paper, measuring it in the sunshine. She folded it and put it back in spirits and ripped a rough dead sheet. I'd like to see those pictures. Something about being alone in a library and looking back into the past through black and white images. Oddly, said Abby, Maddie held her wide red tracing pencil in her hand and defined the chiseled slate stanza on the thin white rubbing paper. The captain's wife is in here. In fact, that's one of the great mysteries of this town. Nobody knows where she is. We do know that she went on a tour, a motor car tour of the United States in the 1920s. She never returned. 
and her friend, a lady from New York, was also reported as missing. Last letter came to Padford in September 1927. Stanza stood bold against the white paper background. Maddie was pleased with her first-time effort. Where was it postmarked from? Ah, of all places, Deadwood, South Dakota. You know where Wild Bell Hickok was shot dead in a poker game? Jack McCall. What was that, Maddie? Asked Abby, looking over the ocean again with her hands on her hips. Nothing, not important. She held up the stone rubbing, each line of the stanza vivid on the paper. What do you think? Not bad, not bad at all. It's the artist in you. Maybe said Maddie, smiling, and she placed another sheet of paper over the rubbing and rolled the paper inward. I could spend all day doing this. This hill is inundated with stones. You'll have to excuse me, I'm not used to all this history. New England is rich in heritage. Maddie walked past more stubby granite stones and read the names out loud. Abby had a story for each family and some of the individuals buried in the graveyard. Maddie listened carefully, aware she had time to return up here during her stay in Maine. About a half an hour later, Maddie unfolded a small gray blanket from her pack, and Abby helped spread it across the grass. Both women sat in the warming sun and placed similar brown paper bags on the wool. Maddie closed her eyes to the sun and listened to Abby's description of the early life in the town. And now remember, the Fairbanks were not the only wealthy family in Rexford. And they declined, of course, but the Suttons and the Wilders made huge fortunes out west during the 19th century. Their houses are closer into town. The captain liked to look out over the sea. Maddie kept her eyes shut and felt the sun heating her skin. The cave tells me the Fairbanks place was abandoned. Maddie opened her eyes and turned when Abby did not reply. Preb said you had breakfast with McCabe and went off in his truck. That's right, my rental is being repaired in the garage. Abby squinted in the sunlight. What's the matter? Well, there are some things about Dan McCabe. Things? She asked, closing her eyes and facing the sun again. I don't think you know, but McCabe left the Marines with a dishonorable discharge. A tiny tinge of uncertainty shot through her body and she tilted her head. What on earth for? Seems that he was a prosecutor. He helped send away military criminals and the like. One of the men kept harassing him during the proceeding. Oh, I can see McCabe not taking any nonsense, she said, nodding and tightening the knot on her sweatshirt. See, McCabe, he leaped across the table, Maddie. He beat the man. To death, Maddie said, anchored like the gravestones, and her face stiffened. He what? They said it was manslaughter. I guess the man pulled a knife on him, but he snapped. Case itself was a murder case. I don't think you know the man you're dealing with. A man who has used his bare fist to kill another human being. Why isn't he in jail if he killed somebody? asked Maddie. Oh, one of those legal beagles probably got him off. Has he ever hit anyone here in Rexford? Not that I know of. And he spent his childhood here without incident. Maddie stopped when she realized how strongly she was defending McCabe. But ask anybody about his personal relationship. McCabe likes to control things. He's gone through two wives, and Preb says he's seen his gamut of women. Hasn't been the same since his wife died a few years ago. She's buried just outside of town, near the congregational church. Maddie's eyes moistened. Preb and I think you should watch yourself. 
Maddie oddly found herself angry with Abby Preble and doubted her sincerity about coming up here. Who else in town had watched McCabe driving her in his pickup or who had stared at them as they left for dinner? The diner itself must have provided a convenient sounding board for the town. Well, I've found McCabe to be courteous and helpful to me. On behalf of Rialto, he's done everything to make my stay here a pleasant one. Abby nodded her head with a sly look in her blue eyes. Maybe that's what he wants you to think, but look what he did. Don't get taken in and then left in the lurch. Well, if the guy's a murderer, why isn't he locked up? I don't know the military justice system, said Abby, finishing a small bottle of apple juice. Well, he must have had a good reason. Maddie stood and moved along the next row of stones. She folded her arms and looked back toward the trail. In a few hours, McCabe would arrive for dinner. Maddie still liked McCabe and thought him sincere, even though he had killed a man with his bare hands. She took her pair of prescription sunglasses from her pocket and placed them over her eyes. Abby crept up from behind. Maddie, I, I, I didn't mean to upset you. I'm not upset. Listen, Preb and I are having some friends over tonight. Why don't you join us? Maddie, her face still tight, smiled. She thought back to McCabe bringing breakfast into her bedroom and remembered the melancholy covering his face on the beach. I think I'll take a rain check, Abby. Maybe in a few days. Chapter 18 The afternoon light swept perfectly across a new line of breakers as Maddie positioned the wooden easel into the rock furrows, not too near the cliff. She sat on a small, rounded metal stool she had again stolen from the kitchen. The brutal tidal surges were loud as they collided with the sculptured magma below, holding back the boundless sea. Huge mounds of green and white foam gushed up against the lower rocks and filled the crisp upper air with a salty spray, sometimes forming a rainbow arched against the puffy clouds. She gripped her brush, glancing at her palette, but her thoughts gravitated toward McCabe, and she conjured an image of him beating another human being to a pulp. How many times in her 36 years on the planet had she summoned enough energy and sufficient anger to take someone's life? While she may have thought about taking John's life when he provoked her, she would not cross the line between fantasy and death's finality. Maybe McCabe's overpowering strength, properly focused, inadvertently killed the other man. Or did wrath send him forth in an incoherent blitz, pummeling and pounding, wrenching and twisting the man to death? She swished her brush bristles against some lighter colors and brought the perspective to the stretched white canvas, creating a sweeping sandy curve. And he had never mentioned his two wives, especially the one buried north of town. She smudged more pastel onto the canvas, adding to the berm's slope toward the marshes. Greens soon appeared behind, and an indigo mix capped the outside of the canvas. She was painting too quickly, thinking about Abby Preble's words back at the graveyard. Her opinion of McCabe wavered, and she clearly remembered him pulling his cell phone from the truck yesterday. Maybe he had stopped by his wife's grave near the church. The hiss and the chiming replayed in her head, and the phone had not rung once while McCabe was at the house. With brush in hand, she stood and stepped back to look at her work, but a loud bang caused her to spin around. The maintenance man had just arrived in his blue truck and connecting trailer cage. He had just opened the tailgate and headed toward the shed. 
She worried about the mower blades. McCabe had told her the maintenance man knew nothing about stolen blades, and McCabe himself acted quickly when she brought up the incident, securing the house with new locks and deadbolts. She prayed he was not providing a cover or an alibi for himself or the maintenance man. Why wouldn't he have already killed you, Maddie? She paced along the smooth brown grain rock, stared at the horizon, and kept her distance from the edge. She could have easily accepted Abby Preble's invitation, yet she let it ride. She folded her arms across her chest and dismissed the mental warnings about McCabe. Perhaps speaking with McCabe could put his actions into better perspective. He was very attentive, and she liked being with him, and did not see him as a killer or a rampant womanizer. She stomped back to the stool with a new determination. This time she concentrated on detail, constructing each swaying reed and depicting the sandy river delta past the incinerator. But she constantly checked the maintenance man's position in the shed. What developed on the canvas during the next hour was burdened in deeper color than the actual landscape, and the excess activity across the breakers mimicked her strained emotions. Across the bay, a darker layer of haze or smoke compressed toward the horizon from the incinerator on the spit. She folded her easel and packed her colors in a carrying case. Tomorrow morning, before she even thought of attempting another try from this location, she would set her easel in the sands, beyond where she and McCabe had walked. She would paint the cliffs and the surrounding foliage from a new perspective. The storm front's towering gray mass inched toward the eastern horizon. Maddie turned and carried the easel back to the house. The older, faded blue pickup with the cage trailer in tow was stationed less than a hundred yards away. Near the open maintenance shed door, the small man with black-rimmed glasses, red shirt, and green baseball cap parted at the workbench. Maddie dragged the easel onto the porch and then returned to scoop up her case and the stool. The man kept busy at the workbench as she shot up the front steps and slid the stool and box onto the porch. Excuse me, she called out, but he did not move from the bench. She scurried down the steps and raised her voice. Excuse me. He looked up from something on the work table vice, peered at her for a few moments, and then stepped outside. Mrs. Summers? I am? Maddie looked to her right under the trees where the lane started down the slope. Mr. Simmons? Yep. He pulled out a red handkerchief from his pocket, lifted off his cap, and wiped his brow and thinning gray hair. Problem? Well... McCabe told me to get one more mowing in before winter. He told you to come up here? Right. He yanked the side of the engine. Did you get the blades sharpened? Well, that would have been nice, except them backup blades weren't here. She crossed her arms and leaned forward. What do you mean? You're the one who took them out of the window. I what? McCabe said you took the blades out to be sharpened. Please, I don't need any more aggravation up here. Ma'am. I don't know what McCabe told you, but I never touched them blades since last April. I told him I set them there after I sharpened them. I don't know where they are. I got my own problems with this engine, and the grass could stand another cutting before winter. Maddie exhaled quickly, her arms still wrapped around her chest. Well, I don't like this at all. Why would McCabe tell me you had the blades? Simmons shrugged his shoulders. Got me. He stepped back into the shed's shadows. Maddie studied his movements, but was more concerned about who took the blades. She debated whether to take the matter further, 
alternately blaming herself for being too suspicious and still fearing someone would slice her neck in the middle of the night. Who else has a key to this place? You mean the storage shed? Me and McCabe have keys. Maddie peered to the empty windowsill. Look, Mrs. Summers, if someone were going to use the blades, shall we say, for foul play, well, they'd be pretty stupid when there's plenty other ways to do somebody in. Thanks, I feel better now. She rolled her eyes and started back along the grass. Near the volleyball net, something glistened in the sun, but she continued onward to the porch. She stopped under the tree near the house and looked toward the distant skies threatening over the bay. Simmons had finished whatever he was doing on the bench and put his tools back in the truck. McCabe wouldn't make up a story about the blades. The object in the grass reflected the sun. She secured her hands on her hips and retraced her steps to the net. Ducking under the net, she perused the grass blades. Behind her, Simmons had secured the lawnmower engine to his truck bed. When he started the truck, a heavy smoke mixture spewed across the yard. On the side lawn, a round brass object was stuck between the grass stubble. As Simmons brought the truck around, she knelt down and pinched what looked like a tie tack and chain. She pulled it up, turned it over, and gasped when she saw the initials on the smooth side. J.S. In the side mirror, Simmons, with a cigarette hanging from his mouth, accelerated through the stone wall opening and into the woods. Mr. Simmons, wait! In a flurry of dust and leaves, the cage disappeared over the hill. She dropped the clasp and ran across the lawn, kicking her long legs into the air as she raced back to the house. As she neared the porch, she slipped in the dirt, scraping her leg at the knee. Blood trickled across the dirty smudge, but she scrambled up the porch stairs, ripped open the screen door, and ran to the black phone. She lifted the receiver to her ear, but heard no dial tone and promptly banged the hollow hook. Hello? Can anyone hear me? Hello? Hello? Can anybody hear me? She dropped the phone and bounded across the room, shaking the floor as she sent the screen door careening against the clapboards. Once on the porch, she followed the black wires from the creosote pole behind the garage. She darted down the porch, placed her hands on the balustrade, and peered around the corner. The thicker, dark electric wire was solidly attached to the top corner of the fascia board, and so was the narrow telephone wire. But at the gray junction box, the painted telephone wire dangled loosely in the breeze. My God! She covered her mouth and her heart pounded fiercely, producing a fleeting, light-headed twinge. Immediately, she faced the woods beyond the lawn. Deep shadows cut through the pines and yellow leaves near the stone wall. Simmons left the maintenance shed open. She stared at the wooded lane, expecting someone to come barreling over the hill at any moment. Breathing deeply, she turned toward her easel and supply box. All the natural surroundings took on an eerie look with her increased vulnerability. The tide had retreated, exposing the moistened sandy berm to a plethora of washed-up seashells and weeds under the encroaching dark skies to the east. She took the easel inside. Brilliant golden light pierced the octagon window and spread up through the second-floor storage room. Any security in her isolation or savoring solitude vanished with abject fear. She locked the screen door and pulled back the front door, twisting the deadbolt in place. Her eyes focused on the kitchen clock. It was twenty past four. McCabe would arrive later. The image of the little groundskeeper repeatedly popped in her head.
He was the only one around the house while she was painting. Yet, she had not used the phone since this morning. Anyone could have snipped that wire while she was hiking with Abby Preble. She walked around the reading room and back to the kitchen, searching for anything out of place. Or maybe the old line had simply snapped. Maddie traversed the ever-deepening shadows and reached into the sink for a paring knife. Water droplets covered two cups and a plate. The fork left from breakfast was still coated with crumbs from a muffin she had eaten hours ago. The little paring knife looked useless as a defensive weapon. She grasped the thick wood handle of a stainless carving knife in the rack near the sugar and the flour canisters. Holding the blade up, she slowly turned toward the cellar door. The bolt was pushed open, and she was unsure whether McCabe had left it that way. She grit her teeth, pulled open the door, and turned on all the cellar lights. With the bulbs blazing, she quickly descended the creaky wood staircase as the screen door rattled in the bursting cold air. Four steps up from the dirt floor, she gripped the pole banister and squeezed the knife in her right hand. Visually, she swept the cellar, lowering the knife. McCabe's metal lock was in place at the bulkhead, and the large green furnace was off during the day. She stepped onto the dirt, searched the corner shelves, and checked each window lock as the remaining sunlight hit the support beam's cobwebs. As she leaned under the stairs, the cellar door slammed shut. She stood upright with the knife. The deadbolt might close if someone was in the house. She waited, convincing herself the ocean wind must have blown through the open windows in the screen door. For a full five minutes, she stood motionless, but no one touched the deadbolt. She marched up the stairs, knife positioned like a bayonet in battle, and she turned the cold knob. Fresh air soothed her face. The kitchen in the reading room seemed darker since she had gone below. She locked the cellar door and secured the bolt herself, checking it three times before she rushed to the kitchen's front window and locked it in place. Her lungs moved rapidly as if she were on the last hundred yards of a marathon run. With the knife thrust upward, she crept across the reading room floor. She pushed the light switch when she reached the stairway. A single glass globe in the ceiling lit the top of the stairs and part of the reading room. She compressed her fingers around the knife handle until her knuckles hurt and inched up one step at a time. The octagon window, the brilliant crimson light, with a scattering of high billow, dark thunderclouds shone across the stairs. From the top of the stairs, the ceramic bathtub was masked in a similar glow, extending toward the bedroom. She peered around the corner, glided past the tub, and stepped into the bedroom. The handmade quilt was pulled up over the fluffy pillows, just as she had left it this morning. But John's tie pin blazed in her thoughts. She swallowed once, switching the knife to her right hand as she crossed the wood floor. The pillow seemed undisturbed under the quilt's hand-sewn red and blue squares. Maddie moved toward the bed and compulsively peeled back the quilt, revealing another yellow rose placed on the pink cotton pillowcase. This is bullshit! She checked the alarm clock. McCabe would drive her into town once he was here. She played out a new scenario. McCabe knew so much about her, her marriage to John, and why she had come up here. He had killed a man with his bare hands, but why would he play these sick games? With the rose in her hand, Maddie descended the stairs. 
She would load up her stuff right now and drive to the Portland airport if she had the rental car. From the kitchen cabinet, she pulled out a glass and filled it with tap water. Then she smiled and stuck the yellow rose into the water and set the glass firmly on the wood table. You don't scare me, John. The outside grounds had an odd magenta hue spread over the leaves and the grass. She opened the door again but stopped midway. The knife was secure in her right hand as the approaching high-altitude clouds brought a surrealistic mask across the bay waters and marshes, blackening the skies north of the river. Thunder shook the distant hills. Now was the time to think straight and act smart. The infringing darkness forced her to turn on the outside lights, and she descended the porch stairs quickly. She would bypass McCabe and leave this place, if she could reconnect those telephone wires. Chapter 19 The insistent wind pushed her bangs and she fumbled with the utility box, and more thunder rumbled across the white-capped murky waters. Under the gable spotlight, Maddie managed by five o'clock to dislodge the outside cover. But she had no flashlight and had to look closely for the brass screw connections she had remembered seeing when some phone guy took apart John's line in Phoenix. But this line was neatly severed, and the inner junction box was missing. She could not follow the wires into the house because the casing contained no wires. The earlier calls, the chiming, and the hiss replayed in her head. She had thought about McCabe standing by his truck, pulling a cell phone from behind the seat. Why did he keep the phone hidden? He may have placed those calls if his wife was buried in the graveyard next to the congregational church. She glanced at the remaining sunbeams projecting between the cloud breaks beyond the maintenance shed and the lane to the highway. The knife tightened her hand. Maddie turned as the lightning flashed across the thickened storm front clouds, creeping toward the bluff. Out at sea, stronger, brilliant boats wound into the ocean. The ensuing thunder grew increasingly louder with each successive boom, but no rain fell in the cold, gusty air. McCabe was overdue. She closed the outside door, muffling temporarily a thunderburst from the ocean. In the light from the kitchen wall lamp, the single rose leaned outward in the clear, tiny bubble-lined glass. Maddie walked to the counter and clicked on the radio knob. After a short time, the volume steadily increased. A single clarinet provided the kitchen with a lonely concert as lightning flashed across the cliffs and trees, producing a shadowy representation over the flowery kitchen wallpaper in a crackle on the radio speaker. The chicken roasting in the oven saturated the cooler air entering through the kitchen window as the boiling potatoes and beans were tossed about inside aluminum pans on the stovetop burners. Rain now splatted the kitchen's southerly exposed windows, and the blazing lamps around the house flickered each time the thunder snapped outside. She had placed the old blue and white colonial plates, thick and blue glass goblets, across the white linen tablecloth, and perfectly folded the matching linen napkins. She pretended McCabe had not beat a man to death with his bare hands. She could squelch her desperate, isolated feeling as long as she kept busy. McCabe was late. She visually checked the cellar lock again and tiptoed across the reading room. The storm static sputtered across the AM band, and a rendition of Chattanooga Choo Choo was swept into a distorted jumble. As the aluminum pans rocked on the stove, 
She touched her cheek against the cold, steamy window glass. With the outside spotlights brightening the grounds, the driving rain perforated the yard's elongated puddles and conjured up an image of a baseball field during a game delay. The wind whipped the leaves loose from the branches and stuck them to the gathering water between the garage and the lawn trees. One of the volleyball nets was knocked to the soggy grass. Where the light met the night shadows, the downpour pummeled John's tie pen. The hissing water careened over the potato pan and sizzled onto the stovetop as she caught sight of the garage door, propped up maybe a foot and a half. Her rapid heartbeat reminded her that she had closed the door. But she rationalized, maybe a strong wind could have jostled that door. The clock passed six o'clock as another boom shook the house. More lightning glared. She ran to the stove, turned off the burner with the two potholders, and then lifted out the long aluminum pan. With each successive lightning barrage, the open garage door brightened through the reading room window. She dumped the rounded potato chunks into a chrome colander. The warming steam rose from the sink and soothed her face. She wiped her forehead and moved to the refrigerator. The air cooled her skin as she reached for the plastic milk container, but she closed the door when she heard a noise in the cellar. She set the milk on the counter and faced the cellar door. The bulkhead was locked, and she had checked every window. Yet, she put her ear close to the wood and listened to the bulkhead door as shaking. She backed away from the door, eyed the clock, and then swiped the thick-handled knife off the linen tablecloth. But when she returned to the cellar door, the rattling had abated, but the wind's bluster continued. The first-floor window locks were secured, and the brass deadbolt was twisted shut. She held the knife in one hand, and with an unsteady grip on the colander, she dumped the potatoes back in the pan. Holding the moisture-covered plastic container, she poured cold milk over the potato chunks. Then she backed toward the refrigerator, fumbled for the chrome handle, and thrust open the door. She set the milk back on the shelf and reached for a gold-foiled stick of margarine under the glass keeper. The raging storm was the radio's lead story as more lightning crackled across the radio speaker. Reports that power outages along the area are extensive and tides have reached record levels. Low-lying areas are currently being evacuated. WZNB has a toll-free number should you be trapped and need services during the storm. Maddie, holding the foil margarine bar in her hand, faced the old yellow radio. Sure, you need a phone for that. She listened as the window glass shook with each new gust racing off the ocean. The technical jargon of the station's weather report confused her as she sliced the paring knife through the foil and squeezed the margarine into the steaming potatoes. After minutes of hyperventilating, she gripped the counter, looking up as the wall lamp's 60-watt bulb dimmed and the radio went silent for a few seconds. Once the power bounced back, she picked up the masher off the counter and pummeled the potatoes into mush. Why is your pen out here, John? She spun around, whipped the potatoes against the aluminum bottom as she grit her teeth and stared at the rose in the glass. The yellow rose, right. It's not my fault, John. It's not my fault you were away all the time. It's not my fault that you married your job. Maddie stopped mashing when she saw the potato gloves splattered across the pink counter. The beans were now sufficiently boiled. She then looked up at the clock as a new round of big band music echoed around the first floor.
The oven timer sounded and she jumped back, slicing the side of her hand on the knife. She grabbed the linen napkin and applied pressure to the open wound. This is crazy! She rushed to the alcove bathroom behind the kitchen and wrapped the napkin compress, but continued to hold the knife as she opened the married cabinet. On the bottom shelf was a yellow box of gauze next to brown bottles of betadine and a tube of antibiotic. When she removed the napkin, deep red blood flowed over the gash. She twisted the cold water knob and placed her stinging hand into a cool, steady stream of blood-mixed water, moving clockwise and descending down a whirlpool in the ceramic sink. Maddie opted for one of the wide band-aids inside a rusted metal box. The adhesive stuck as she peeled back the covering and placed the square gauze onto the cut. Then she shut the medicine cabinet door and saw her drawn, sweat-covered face and matted hair in the mirror. Her image vanished as the radio went out and the room darkened. She heard the beans boil for a few moments, but the sound puttered out as she turned and faced the lightning-lit kitchen in the reading room beyond. Without the lights, the thunder seemed louder as she clutched the knife handle and pressed her buttocks against the sink. The water was still running. She reached back with her left hand, feeling for the sink top, and quickly turned off the knob. The flashes reminded her of strobe lights inside nightclubs where she and John had danced. The clouds rumbled again as she instinctively looked at the wall clock. Her wristwatch put the time one minute ahead. She ran across the vinyl. The baked chicken's tasty aroma was now evident in the oven-heated air as she gravitated to the front kitchen window. She unlocked the sash and sent the window upward. The cold, wet, salty air sprayed her heated skin. She took in the air, inhaling several times, but as she gazed across the lightning trail to the woods, she pulled the window back in place and turned the sash lock so hard her wound split. She shook her hand and stepped back with the knife. In the dim light, she fixated on the octagon window and quickly climbed the stairs on her hands and knees. She grabbed the wooden casing with her left hand and set the knife on the ledge. The fallen volleyball net, the open maintenance shed, and the deserted road were alternately illuminated from the brilliant lightning display, part of the storm delaying McCabe's arrival. Another yellow rose, left like crumbs from hell, and John's tie clasp with the initials JS on the surface and no McCabe, and no way to contact him as lightning flashes are followed by crashing thunder. Her hand stinks from the knife cut. How do you spend your vacation? Well, I know I wouldn't want to be up there, but hopefully, hopefully we all spend our vacations a little bit more sedate than Maddie Summers. I have news for you folks, it's going to get worse. I'm Robert P. Fitton, hunkering down in the basement, hoping the intruder never comes in. Let the good times roll! All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittonbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.